Well, all right, you know who I am, do you? I don't need to go into all of that stuff. Um, What are you doing here? Well, we've titled this with a fairly tempting title. It's not really one that I would have chosen. I would have chosen a much more boring title. But the unfolding story of the Bible is what is a hook, you see, to get you in here. Uh, What it really is, is uh, what's called biblical theology. Now, biblical theology is simply uh, the understanding of the teaching of the Bible as it comes to us when we read through the Bible. So we get a progression and an accumulation of doctrine and of teaching and of of hopefully understanding of scripture from uh, just reading through it and from paying attention to that unfolding drama. So that's what biblical theology basically is. It certainly is the way that I'm going to be using it here. If, by the end of this course, I'm not talking to myself, and you want to do it again, um, then there are two more courses, all right? So you might want to think about this. Um, What we will do at the end of this course, we're going to get to, uh, well... We'll try to get to the end of the Pentateuch. Um, We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis. Did you come to any of my classes? No, you didn't. Okay. Uh, Well, we're going to spend most of the time in Genesis, and there's a good reason for that, because it's foundational to our understanding of the rest of Scripture. But we are going to look a little bit in Exodus, and we're going to look at Numbers, and we're going to look at um, Deuteronomy, and probably skip Leviticus, just because we may not have time to, to bring some of that stuff in. But I'll see. After that, what we, we will do is uh, have a quick historical overview and then we're going to plunge into the Old Testament prophets and we're going to mine the Old Testament prophets. What we do here in this course will feed into what we pick up upon in the next course in the prophets and I'm going to show you themes and sub-themes that the prophets uh, deal with that they take from the first five books of scripture and how they develop those themes and uh, in particular I'm going to call attention to covenants and the way that the covenants uh, start to to play a, a huge part in our understanding of God's program And then what we will do in the third, of course, is that we'll pass over into the New Testament. And uh, one of the big challenges for those people that try to do these things is that they try to meld the Old Testament with all of its promises to Israel and, you know, king and land and all of the other stuff that it promises and try and figure out what on earth the New Testament has got to do with any of that because it doesn't really seem to pick up on those things, does it very much? It kind of goes off in its own little trajectory and talks about the church. So what I want to do is to show that there is a continuation and a continuity between what we study in the Old Testament and what people like the Apostle Paul talk about in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed that when you look at the Old Testament... Uh, it's very particular 
about the certain things that it's teaching, isn't it? It's not really ambiguous. I mean, it says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it this way, and I'm going to do it to this group of people. And then you get to the New Testament, and it's like some of that goes. It disappears into the ether, and you get the Apostle Paul who will quote the Old Testament, but he will quote the Old Testament in service of the doctrine of the church. But he does it in such a way that he's almost not surprised at the application of Old Testament truth to the church. And you think, well, hold on a minute. You can't, you know, how can you, how can you do that? How can you transition like that? Are you using a different set of interpretative rules? Or are you, is there something about the culture that we need to learn in order to understand what on earth the apostle is doing? And I'm going to try to show you that we don't need to do any of that. All we need to do is actually pay attention a bit more closely to the way Paul in particular, but the gospel writers too, and John and so on, how they use the themes that have been developed in the Old Testament and how um, those themes are still alive and well. There's no, excuse you, there's no prevarication um, that happens between Old Testament and New Testament. Um, So that's what this course is about. That's what you'll be learning if you stick through to the bitter end. And you will find that we'll start off simply. But if you fall asleep or think, I know this stuff, why doesn't he get onto something that's more deep? Okay, then uh, more fool you because if you if you miss this bedrock stuff, you are not going to appreciate properly what happens later on. It is a cumulative process of revelation. You've heard the term progressive revelation, have you? Some of you have. Um, Well, that's one of the terms that's really distorted by a lot of people nowadays, but this is what it means. It means that revelation progresses, okay? Do you get that? Okay, it does. It doesn't stop and start and change and skip and omit. It does progress in a linear fashion. God is an excellent communicator, though to listen to some modern scholars, you would think that he was an awful communicator. Because he starts off saying one thing, and you think, yeah, I got that, I understand that. And then it's like, we're told, at least, yeah, but you didn't mean that. You didn't really mean that. That's a shadow, or that's a type of what the reality is today. And you think, well, why didn't you say that in the first place, instead of misleading me? Um, God doesn't actually Uh, he really does mean what he says and that's one of the I suppose key things that you will hear me say over and over again Um, ad nauseum actually I say it Uh, in these courses he really does now I do know that he uses figures of speech and poetry and things like that of course we do too actually have you ever caught yourself with the figures of speech that you use? 
you should try it. You should try listening to yourself when you're talking to somebody and uh, try and pick up on the figures of speech that you drop. And you don't even know that you're using them. But we do use them an awful lot. And yet, we're quite confident that we're communicating our meaning in a straightforward and fairly clear way, aren't we? Some of us are better at it than others, but uh, we at least think that we're communicating in, a, in the way that we want to communicate. We don't have some kind of hidden, deeper meaning that we want them to discover. We're trying to tell them what we're thinking. And uh, God does that too, actually. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? A little word about me. My sense of humour is dry. Um, So please don't take offence, okay? I don't mean anything if I come across a little bit, um, I don't know, rough and ready or hard on you. I don't mean to be. I'm just, I've just got a dry sense of humour, okay? So I, I really, I'm very harmless. Um, if you persist in sticking your hand up and asking questions all the time in the middle of when I'm teaching, I will ignore you. <laughs> There's a reason for this. It's because I want you to think. And you can't think, and other people can't think, if you keep changing the subject all the time. Okay, especially this. I'll warn you about it. You're going to do it anyway, but I am warning you about it here. You are going to be tempted to ask, yeah, but what about this over here? Okay, what about what Paul says in the book of Romans or in the book of Revelation or something like that? Yes, you're going to be tempted to do it. Some of you are probably going to do it. And you will be told, you'll have to wait. Because the book of the Revelation is not at the beginning of the Bible, it's towards the end of the Bible, and we are at the beginning of the Bible. And I want to build a cumulative case of God's revelation. In other words, I want us to come back to the Bible as a disclosure to us, which is a logical disclosure, that we can map out exactly what God intends and and kind of learn in the way that he wants us to learn it. Um, Let's see, what else should I say about me or the way that I teach? Don't take breaks, usually. If you are dying to ask a question because you really don't understand something I say, then you can, okay, for clarification. But I will warn you about this, that often I will answer your question if you'll just wait for a bit, okay? In other words, I may well have thought about what you're thinking about, but I'm not ready to address that right now, okay? So, and if I don't, then by all means, tell me. At the end of the lesson then I will open it up to questions. And um, I will try to be as magnanimous as I can be uh, at that time in dealing with uh, kind of, I don't know, off-topic questions or things like that, things that are nagging at you that you just must get answered. I will see if I can uh, answer them then. 
All right, was there anything else that I wanted to say before I got cracking here? Oh, yeah. Um, you've, you see on your handout here that I talk about this course as being something called biblical covenantalism. Um, I do apologize for that designation. Okay, It's not really a very elegant phrase, is it? I couldn't think of a better one. Uh, most of the real good ones have been used up already. So that's the best one I, I came up with. The reason that I'm teaching biblical covenantalism will become manifest as we start to uh, particularly start off with, with the Noahic Covenant. So when we get into the Noahic Covenant around about week five, then you will start to see why, why the covenants of Scripture are so vital and how God is using covenants to point forward to what he's going to do, to a trajectory, to a purpose. And... Uh, the covenants are there to tell you what to do and how to interpret what he's going to do. Okay? All right. Now, before I get on to the next thing, does anyone have any questions about that introduction? Are you sure you've come to the right place? <laughs> oh, there's another thing too. You'll probably uh, leave every evening with a bit of a headache. But that's, that's just the way it is, okay? That's just the way it is. All right. I want to say something about um, the interpretation of Scripture and the way that I approach the interpretation of Scripture. And Again, this is not, we're not kind of diving into the course proper right now. Uh, but I think if I kind of run over what I call the rules of affinity... Uh, it will help you to see uh, at least how you might, when you come across a passage, how you might deal with it, okay? So can I do that? All right. Um, the rules of affinity is something I came up with. Affinity, I, I got the word from, I was reading something, and I was looking for a, a word to describe this system that I'd devised. And... Uh, I couldn't think of it. I couldn't think of one. Then I was reading this book and it had this word affinity in it. I thought, that's what I want. I want an affinity between what the Bible is saying and between what I claim the Bible is saying. Because often there's a disconnect between what the Bible's saying. You've seen this when, you know, you've, you've listened to some preachers on the radio or on TV. Or, yeah? There's a disconnect between what the Bible's saying and what the preacher is saying, what the teacher is saying. And you think, well, how did he get that out of that passage? And that's a very good question. Sometimes it is a mystery how he gets it out of that passage. Um, but it shouldn't be, because he's supposed to be basing his teaching, basing his preaching on what God says. There is no authority to anything that I say if it doesn't match what God says. And um, where I don't, don't convince you that what I'm saying lines up with what God is saying, then you need to take what God's saying 
in preference to what I'm saying, okay? Probably between 10 and 20% of what I tell you in all of these courses will be false. Okay, you confident now in pursuing? It's, I just don't know which 10 or 20%. If I did, I wouldn't tell you, you see, but I'm bound to make mistakes and I'm bound to say things that aren't quite right because I'm still learning. And I'm not the fount of all knowledge. I'm not Sir Oracle. So don't come to me expecting that I know everything because I don't. Uh, I've studied a fair bit, and but maybe you know some, I might say something you might, you want, might want to challenge me on it, and that's fine. Um, I don't have all of the answers, so please understand then that we are first and foremost and always interested in what God says, and then only secondarily interested in what Henry says. Uh, we're interested in what I say if it matches what God says. Um, I have no sacred anointing or anything like that to uh, produce the truth. I just have a lot of work and a lot of study and prayer and listening to my peers and better people than me and uh, trying to put it together the best way that I can. All right. Let's see how wobbly this board is. Oh, it's pretty wobbly, isn't it? All right. An affinity is something that uh, connects one thing with another. We say that two people have an affinity uh, together. That means that they're drawn together by certain things that they have in their personalities or in their lives or in their likes or dislikes and so on. They have an affinity. Uh, certain colors have an affinity. Gina's always telling me that. Okay? That's my wife. Um, there is some affinity between uh, those pants and that shirt. And then there's what you've got on. Um, and I'm pretty bad at that. But I'm English and I'm allowed to be like that because all English people have got bad teeth, bad hair and no clothes sense. So that's what she married into. Right. Now... Um, what are the rules of affinity? What they do is that they track the connection between a biblical text and uh, what the teacher is teaching. So we've all heard people say, well, I believe it because it's biblical. Um, we've got people that say, well, I'm a... I'm not going to stomp on anybody here, okay? Much. But um, you get people that say... I'm a Calvinist because it's biblical. And then you get people that say, I'm an Arminian because it's biblical. So which one of them's right? The one that's biblical? You actually, you might as well take off the word because it's biblical and, and just leave I'm a Calvinist, I'm an Arminian because you don't have any extra information with the uh, the description, do you? Because it's biblical. Occam's razor just kind of knocks that off. It's just no, no use. What do you mean by it's biblical? Do you mean that you can go to the Bible and actually prove that position? 
I think that's what they, they want to say. But often when uh, some brethren do that, you find that their positions are sometimes not as biblical as they make out. And you, you sometimes, um, it sometimes seems that, that they're having some kind of a skirmish with the biblical text to make it say what it needs to say in order to support what they've decided is the truth. We all tend to do that because uh, sometimes we have this idea in our mind, sometimes we have a, a background of teaching or Sunday school teaching or whatever, or was a favourite book that we read or whatever. Or there's even a position that we take that we really do believe is the right position and yet um, we just wish the world was, was the way that we want it to be and that the Bible would fit in with that world. And we don't like it when the Bible seems to, uh, you know, throw something into the mix that we can't deal with. And so what we do is that we kind of, you know, have a bit of a punch up with the, the text. And we know that it doesn't really say what we want it to say, but we just pretend that it does and we pass on. Um, so what we're doing in, in dealing with the affinity of scripture is, uh, Try to kind of reduce that as much as possible. All right, somebody give me some biblical doctrines. Trinity. All right, well, you would give me the Trinity, wouldn't you? <laughs> you can leave the Trinity for a minute if you would. It is a very good one, but you know very well uh, that uh, there is no clear text in Scripture that says the Trinity is... Uh, Three persons in one essence. But we will get to that, Mark, okay? Somebody give me another <laughs> doctrine. Okay, how? All right. So, let's see. So, if you go to, let's see, Matthew 25, for example, or Revelation 14. Are you going to go there? Matthew 25, you will see at the end there that Jesus warns about uh, hell. Now, you know that hell, by the way, is just an English translation of the Greek term Hades, which really means the place of departed spirits. But it's come over uh, by the Latin into uh, the English idiom, uh, meaning a place of uh, perdition, a place of destruction, a place of torment. And we understand that. Yes, as long as we understand that, we can, uh, we can use it. So, Matthew 25, you're all there before me. Remember, this is the passage where Jesus is talking about uh, those people that treat him correctly, don't treat him correctly, how he takes the treatment of, of other people personally. And to the extent that we haven't treated the saints rightly, we haven't treated him rightly and so on. And uh, towards the end here, he says, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, look again at verse 46. These will go away into everlasting punishment. Do you see that? Uh, elsewhere in scripture, in 
uh, Mark 9, for example, and also Revelation 14, if you want to turn there. I can't go to all of these passages because we will eat up on time. Revelation 14. You'll see here that um, there is a, a judgment that is pronounced upon, uh, upon people. In verse 9, it says, uh, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on their forehead, and so on and so forth, it goes on, and uh, talks about that they will taste the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, and so on and so forth. And uh, then later on it says that the beast and the false prophet are thrown into that place too. And Revelation 20 refers to it. Uh, too. And you put together with these very clear and straightforward scriptures which talk about eternal punishment, this doctrine of hell. There is a very close affinity, in other words, a very close correspondence between what these passages are describing and the doctrine of hell as we put it into our church statements of faith and uh, our understandings of what that place is, Yes. There's not really very much left to the imagination as far as a straightforward understanding that the doctrine of hell involves some very unpleasant stuff like fire, darkness, torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of those things. So I hope that you can see that in pushing across a doctrine of hell we can uh, bring out these kinds of passages as supports for the doctrine and there is a very close affinity between the passages that we're using as proof texts and what we're saying hell is. Hell being a place of eternal damnation for those who are the enemies of God or some such proposition. Does that make sense? Okay, give me another doctrine. <coughs> What's that? The hypostatic union. Well, oh my goodness, dear. That's in the last course. All right, well, okay. So, go to Philippians chapter 2. The hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ, if you didn't know, is the explanation of the doctrine of how Christ can both be divine and human at the same time and there's no admixture. Okay? In other words, he's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% divine but he's also 100% human. This is why uh, we read in the Gospels, we read that Jesus wept, for example, in John 11. We read that Jesus got tired, uh, Jesus felt pain, Jesus was hungry. Uh, gods normally don't have that problem. But he was human, he was fully human. And yet, he was also divine. He took upon himself prerogatives of, uh, of divinity. 
so in Mark chapter 1 or 2, I can't remember right off the bat, but uh, he forgives sins. And uh, the Pharisees are accusing him and they say, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus answers, that you may know that the Son of Man, which is a divine title from uh, Daniel 7, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he says to the man, in illustration of the power of his words to forgive sins, for the man to get up and take his mat and walk home, which is what he does. The one, the lesser, illustrating the greater claim to forgive sins, do you see? Um, so that's the doctrine. All right, I said uh, Philippians 2. And uh, Ken, I will get you back for this. Right. You know this passage, don't you? <clears throat> Let this mind, verse 5, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. That means he was in the form of God. It doesn't mean that he, he was a pretend God, he just looked like God. That's not what it means. And Morphe, there, it has to do with the fact that he was divine uh, in his nature. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The equality that, that was in the mind of Christ, and remember this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, that which was in the mind of Christ was perfectly happy and content without any qualms of conscience or or um, trouble with being on absolutely equal terms with God the Father. That's what he's saying there. Uh, that would start to be a Trinitarian verse. <clears throat> he did not consider it to be uh, robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, so he himself put a, took upon himself uh, this humiliation of no reputation taking the form and morphe again of a bond servant to God and coming in the likeness of men so he became a human being he wasn't a human being he was a divine he is the divine son of God from eternity he became a human being in time if I can just interject something here um we cannot really understand um, the significance of sin and the significance of ourselves and the value that God places on us if we don't understand the humiliation of the second person of the Trinity in coming into the world that he created to be one of the, one of the beings that he created in order to save the beings he created. Also, I hope that you see that in order to do that there could be no other way of saving us I mean if there could have been why do it it shows you the depths of our rebellion to God the depths of our unbelief the, the uh, uh, refusal to face ourselves and what we really are you know, in our heart of hearts when people aren't really looking and, uh, and when we, we know we're not what we're supposed to be. Um, we can lie to ourselves, which is what we often do, uh, or we can tell ourselves the truth, that we're 
we're rotten. But even when we tell ourselves that we're rotten, we don't know how rotten we are. God does. The, the rottenness that is in every one of our hearts called down the Son of God to this cursed earth. Okay, this is what this passage is, is referring to. And so he comes in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself yet more, we might add, and became obedient to the point of death. He is the Lord of life. In him was the life of men. And yet he becomes obedient to death. Do you see? What a great contradiction it is. Even the death of the cross, with the uh, word excruciating, uh, comes from this Latin term, uh, out of the cross. Um, so, um, what this passage is saying, therefore, is that he who was uh, in perfect uh, accord with uh, the divine mind, because he himself was divine, not two gods, but we believe in a trinity and we'll get to that, uh, yet came into the world to become a creature uh, to die for those that he loved in order to rescue them. That's what the gospel is, folks. I mean, the, the gospel is a love story. It's a love story between your creator and you. And if you spurn his love, there is only one other response. Um, and that is the other side of that love, which is a divine justice that must come down on you, not because God wants to judge you. We just read, by the way, that hell is for the devil and his angels. Uh, But if you want to join the devil and his angels, you have your choice. Um, But that's not the way it needs... It it has to be. It doesn't have to be that way. You can just tell God what a sinner you are and you can trust that Jesus died in your place for your sins. And that if you just will believe that, you believe that he came from heaven, lived on earth, died on earth uh, for you, rose again, that God will say, okay, you can have his righteousness. You can have the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of heaven. And all of your dirty, filthy sins will be put on Christ on the cross. That's what the gospel is. That's what that transaction is. But this passage is referring here to both the deity of Christ and also the humanity of Christ and ends up back with the deity of Christ in verse 11 that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, kurios, which means Lord, as in God, to the glory of God the Father. Uh, There are other passages that deal with that, uh, but these... uh, this passage at least gets you some way towards understanding that difficult doctrine, which is uh, not exactly what I was expecting when I asked the question, but it serves me right for asking it in the way that I did. Somebody uh, give me another doctrine. Soteriology. uh, Soteriology. Okay, but let's just just, uh, say, um, because we have to kind of boil that down, but, but let's say that uh, uh, Christ died for our sins, okay? Is that okay? 
So, 1 Corinthians 15, verse, uh, what is it? Verse 4. This is the, um, it is written, that passage when uh, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about the gospel. And he says, I should be able to quote it from heart, but. I've received to you, first of all, verse 3, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. What's the uh, correspondence between the statement that Christ died for our Scripture, uh, died for our sins, excuse me, and the statement of that text that Christ died for our sins? Well, it's, a, it's a complete verbal Agreement, isn't it? Um, just take this off for a minute. So what you have is that you have a statement, a proposition of the doctrine which says that uh, Christ died for our sins. And then you have a scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, was it? Verse 3. Um that says the exact same thing. Here's another doctrine. Uh, God created the world. Give me the text. Okay. <clears throat> so creation. And you, you know, so you have your proposition, your statement that should be on your uh, statement of faith, and then you just back it up with a very simple, straightforward. Quotation of Scripture. The Scripture tells you that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, you should believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Do you see the affinity between the two things? Um, what about the resurrection? Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15. You can go to Acts chapter 2. You can go actually loads and loads of places which tell you that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. What about uh, forgiveness? So if you receive Jesus as your saviour, you have what? Forgiveness of sins. What? Yeah, and you also are given something. Yeah, eternal life. How come you know that? John 3.16, John 5.24. Many, many passages describe these very truths in very straightforward and simple terms. All you actually need to do is to take the biblical passages and put them into your statement of faith, your propositions on your statement of faith. You don't need to do any kind of squeezing of them or anything like that, do you? You can do this. You can try this, okay? You can do this with every fundamental doctrine of Scripture apart from Yours and yours, um, which we'll look at. <clears throat> but you can. Every, every fundamental doctrine of Scripture, second coming of Christ, what's it going to be? Tell me. It's going to be what? It's going to be a revelation, yeah. What is it going to be? Is it going to be spiritual? No. Yes, isn't it? It's going to be physical, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be physical. 
he's going to bodily return to this earth. Okay, Acts 1.11, for example, as you've seen him go, so he's going to come down again. Um, every major doctrine you can do that with. You've got this one-to-one affinity. So, I'm going to be doing a lot of this, I can see. This is what I call a category one, sorry, a category one correspondence between the belief that we have, say that Jesus died for our sins, and what the Bible says, Jesus died for your sins. Uh, That Jesus rose again bodily, that Jesus is coming again, that you're a sinner, and that there's nothing that you can do to impress God. He's not impressed by you at all. He's impressed by his son who can take your place. Uh, so these are C1 propositions. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That, that, that nearly every major doctrine of scripture, not when we get into the nuances of things, but every major doctrine is a C1. You think, well, duh, you know, what's so revelatory about that? Well, you've probably never thought about that, but that's really profound. God has clearly told you everything that you need to know at the basic level in this very, very straightforward, direct way. But there are some doctrines, and they're very important doctrines, that you can't do that with. One of them is the Trinity. There isn't a, a, a verse, like we said, there isn't a verse that says that um, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, three persons, coexistent, coextensive, coequal, and all of that. But what you do find is a bunch of C1 scriptures which tell you that the Father is God. You can go to John 1. Well, John 1. Um, that the Son is God. You can also go to John 1. And uh, Unless you're Jehovah's Witness. Um, you can go to John 20.28. 20, you can go to many passages. John uh, Romans 9.5. Um, and the Holy Spirit is God. Acts 5. Well, hold on a minute. If... God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. Are there three gods? No, because according to the Shema, which is the the great statement of faith of the Old Testament about God's person, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you find this repeated over and over and over again in the scripture. There is only one God. All of these other gods, Baal and Chemosh and the rest of them, Allah, are false gods. They're not true gods. There is one God, and that is the God of Scripture. All right, so you've got clear teaching. It's a a C1 teaching that tells you that there is one God. And what's the first commandment? No other gods, okay? So that's pretty clear. But then you've got this data that's telling you 
that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are divine. What do you do with that? Well, clearly, what you do is that you say, well, that means, inevitably, there's only one logical conclusion. God is one, and yet, the oneness is in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's where you get your doctrine from. Now, that's not a straightforward, direct correspondence. I hope you can see that. You get there by two steps. And yet, you do get there very clearly, and so that's what I call a C2. Uh, correspondence. Now, every major doctrine of Scripture is either a C1, nearly all C1, or C2. There shouldn't be any finagling, any questions about this. You don't have to believe this, but it is what the Bible says. Uh, Same with the hypostatic union. You know, we went to Philippians 2. There were other places that we could have gone to. But these are straightforward texts which bring out that the Son is divine, but also the Son is human. Um, And so we develop over looking at the texts about Christ this the, the fact that in his humanity, in order to uh, to be a true human being, he had to lay some of his prerogatives by. He had the prerogative of being omniscient, of knowing everything. Yet, he looked at the fig tree expecting to find figs on it, or the knops, the pagine that were on there. Uh, And he didn't find any, and he got annoyed, and uh, he cursed it. Now, he cursed it as a kind of a living parable of what was going on in the temple. So he just—he wasn't getting ticked off with the tree and blaming the tree for it. He was just uh, using that as an illustration. And yet, I mean, he wouldn't have approached the tree if he'd have ex- if he'd have known, using his omniscience, that it didn't have anything on it under the leaves. Do you see that? There was a limitation, a self-limiting of Jesus that happened when he took upon himself his human nature. He even says this. Uh, when he's asked by um, the uh, uh, James and John, the brothers, you know, grant to us that uh, we sit right next to you in your kingdom. He says, well, it's, not for my, it's not mine to forgive, but those for whom it is prepared. But it's not mine to give. There was a self-limitation there, you see. In Jesus, you have to deal with that. Jesus did not avail himself of his own power, of his own knowledge, in a sense, in not any of those those prerogatives. He relied on the Holy Spirit. That's why he can be an example to us. He's not an example if he's if he just uses this divine ability that's his own. Do you see? but he avails himself of the Holy Spirit. He's a man of the Spirit. He does his miracles by the Spirit of God. He says that. He's led by the Spirit. So look at his baptism. Look at Luke 3 and 4. You, you see that he's, he's thrust into the wilderness uh, by the Spirit. He's brought out of the wilderness into the Spirit. He's brought by the Spirit to the synagogue. He says, I do always 
only those things that I hear the Father say. He's a servant. There's his humanity, and yet he is divine. Um, the demons recognize who he is. And when he's risen, Thomas recognizes who he is, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't get offended. He accepts it because that is a correct identification. So, you see, you can build up by using these C1 correspondences, you can build up a picture of the doctrine of even uh, the two natures of Christ which correspond to to uh, a C2. You have to take some steps and yet the inevitable conclusion that you'll come to will be that this must be the biblical doctrine. You're right. You're getting a bit bored over there. (laughs) Poor girl. Um, Now, then there are C3s. I'm a pre-tribulationist, okay? So I believe that the rapture of the church, the taking out of the church, uh, will happen before the seven-year tribulation that's spoken of in different parts of Scripture. Can I go to any passage of Scripture where it teaches that? No, I can't. Can I go to any passage of Scripture that tells me or even clearly intimates to me that it's going to be pre-tribulational by any kind of cumulative uh, uh, looking at at doctrines which say um, the church will be taken out at this time and then God will deal with Israel in the tribulation or anything like that. No, no straightforward. Uh, No, there's no straightforward... um, texts that do that there are texts that that uh, lead you to what's called in uh, well it's a scientific term but it's uh, it's coming to the best explanation reasoning to the best explanation okay now I believe the best explanation for the the biblical data that you find in 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 12, and many other passages, that these uh, lead us to an understanding that the church will not go through the tribulation. Okay? But I do it by the accumulation and the setting out and pulling together of these different texts. But there are gaps there are some problems and there are people, sincere people, that believe that the the church is going to go through half of the tribulation and some of them believe that the church is going to go through about three quarters of the tribulation and there are others that believe the church is going to go right the way through the tribulation. And they have their text that they use and they have their explanations that they come to. Yes? I think they're wrong. I think my explanation is better than theirs. But they think their explanation is better than mine. The thing is that it doesn't, we can't, we can't come to agreement like we can on things like the deity of Christ or the resurrection of Christ or, you know, these other 
things. We can't come to those kinds of agreements just by pointing at different passages. Because there is a, a difference between the text or text that we use and the inferences sorry about my writing that we make from those texts. And there is an inferential distance that we have to fill. There's no distance between uh, I believe God created the heavens and the earth and then citing Genesis 1.1. You don't need to, to infer anything. I mean, it's just what it says. But there is here, you have to, you have to you know, put some argument in there. Um, that's your reasoning to the best explanation. Do you see that? And so that's what a C3 is. Uh, and so uh, things like um, pre-tribulational rapture or post-tribulational rapture, uh, even I would stick in here things like uh, the believer's baptism. Is it full immersion? I believe it is. Or is it effusion? It could be. It's not baby sprinkling, but... Um, I hope I'm not offending anyone that way. But anyway, these are C3 doctrines. They're still important doctrines. But you, I hope that you can see that you shouldn't get in a big punch-up over them because uh, both of you are just trying to come to the best understanding of the Scripture that you can, but you don't have as much clear data as you do with, say, the deity of Christ or justification by faith, Romans 5.1. And two, very clear, being justified by faith, we have peace, yeah. Um, or the resurrection, or, well, you know, all of these other doctrines. You can't do that with some doctrines. And so you have to have some, um, you, you have to come to a position where you say, this is what I believe based on this, these texts and this argument. I don't think I'm wrong, but I might be wrong. Okay? You have to have some humility. In other words, you get to a position, I'm going to use a big word here, that is defeasible. I think it's I-B. Defeasible. Uh, Something that's defeasible is something that has the possibility of being overthrown by more information, more knowledge, more understanding. Okay? So a C3 is defeasible. Are you alright? Give me a funny look over there. Alright. Um, category. Yeah. Alright, so now. Paul, where is the one that says even, you know, because that would be in some category. Jesus says, even I don't know the time for the exact return. Only my father mm-hmm. knows it. So yeah. he did give up his everything to I mean submitted. His deity didn't know because Christ. No, his humanity didn't know. I meant his humanity didn't know. Mm-hmm. He said, Holy. Yeah, that's another example, isn't it? Of uh, you would use a doctrine like that or a passage like that to teach that in his humanity he had to uh, lay some of those prerogatives by. In Philippians chapter 2, in some translations you will, uh, the, the Greek term 
Ekenosan is translated as he emptied himself. Okay, That is a literal translation, but it's also a misleading translation. The reason is because we will say he emptied himself of his divine attributes. No, that's not what he did. What he meant there is that he made himself of no reputation. That's what the word means, really. Which is why, in the English translation, that is what you get in a, in a good English translation. It, it, it takes that Greek language, but it, it translates it for you in a way that makes you theologically orthodox instead of a heretic. Okay? <clears throat> All right. So... Now, all of the biblical doctrines that you have and that you believe, they ought to be C1s primarily, C2s, some of them, or C3s. And the C3s, you don't get a dust up about, but you you may hold to them quite tenaciously because you've reasoned to them and you've studied them. Some people haven't studied them. But there are others. There are C4s and there are C5s. I'm not going to spend much time here on these. I think I'm safe because I've read your statement of faith. So I should be all right in what I'm saying. I'm going to give you some examples of C4s and C5s. C4s and C5s are when you are using a biblical text, but it actually doesn't say anything about what you're trying to make it say. But you are loading your proposition, your teaching, with a great deal of your own inferences and calling it biblical. An example of this might be infant baptism. Say that again. Infant baptism. The baptism of babies. Sprinkling of babies. The Bible nowhere teaches the sprinkling of babies. Nowhere. There's not one text that comes anywhere near it. So what do you do? What you do, you go to Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, you have that uh, prophetic text, dealing with Israel, by the way, which says, I will sprinkle clean water over you, and you will be clean. But the Hebrew word, by the way, doesn't mean sprinkle, it means slosh, actually, like you know, throwing a bucket of water over someone. Uh, but even if that was the case, I hope that you will see that that doesn't say that that's a baptismal rite. Uh, it's, it's actually um, when Israel as a nation comes to know God through Christ. Uh, the uh, oh, what's it? The Philippian jailer in Acts 16. It says that he was saved in his household. What's the inference? He may have had some babies in there. Okay, and since you're baptized after you're saved, and it says they were all saved, they all believed, then you can, you can baptize babies. Well, how do you know there were some babies in there? It doesn't tell you. You're inferring it. Do you see? The very fact that they believed probably means there weren't any babies in there. Do you see? Uh, so this would be where the distance between the proposition we should baptize babies and we should sprinkle babies and the, te- uh, the text that you're using demands a great deal of, of inference from you freighting in meaning into your doctrine. You should never do that because the Bible doesn't teach it. You're teaching it. That's not the Bible, that's you. Do you see? 
So I call this a C4. It gets worse. You can get, you can get even worse than this because you can start teaching some doctrines uh, that uh, the Bible actually contradicts. Um, again, I hope I'm not stepping on anyone's shoes. If I am, I apologise. But uh, there's a doctrine that's called limited atonement, that Christ only died for the elect. Have you heard that doctrine? Um, that's interesting, but John 3.16 says that he died for the world. And the world in John's theology doesn't mean the elect. It doesn't mean the elect in any theological dictionary in existence. The world means the unregenerate world. It always means that in John. Love not the world or the things in the world. Why? What's wrong with the world? Well, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Okay, a lot of stuff going on in the world that God doesn't like. So you're not supposed to like it. Because the world is anti-God. But God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world for its sins, but that the world might be saved. Or whatever. I can't remember how it finishes off. But... Um, do you see there's, there's a, always that meaning? Um, the book of Galatians says, if you'll turn there with me, I've nearly finished this part of things. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, no, let's go from verse 2 and then we'll go to verse 5. This only I want to learn from you, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, which one are you supposed to answer? You've got two options. <laughs> the hearing of faith. So what did you have to have first in order to receive the Spirit? Hearing. Of Faith, yes. Therefore, he who supplies, verse 5, the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? If you don't have any faith, you cannot receive the Spirit. Yet, um, the, uh, the doctrine of limited atonement teaches that Christ only died for the, the elect only died for the people that God planned to save, and you get saved, the elect get saved, by you being regenerated and then believing. Is that what Paul says? John 5.24, what does that say? Can someone tell me what John 5.24 says? Truly, truly, I say to you, Come on, guys. I don't mind embarrassing you a little bit, okay? You're supposed to know some of this stuff. 524. Read it. Uh, most surely I say to you, he who hears my word and 
pass from death into life? What's the key? What's the thing that opens the door? Belief. Belief. Exactly. If you don't believe, you don't get everlasting life. It's not that you get everlasting life and then you believe, like some folks teach. It's the exact reverse. So, I hope that you can see that people that that, uh, teach, and they hold on tenaciously, by the way, tenaciously to some of this stuff. Uh, People that believe this stuff, what they do is that they come to, to these verses and they start to have a bit of a dust-up with them. The, the verses don't say what they're supposed to say in order to teach what they know God really means. And so what they say is, yeah, but you see, the world in John 3.16 is really the elect. So it's God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever of the elect believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, if that's what he meant, why did you say that? I mean, because somebody like me is dumb enough to think that, that when he says world, he actually means world. Do you see? It would have been far easier if God had just meant what he said. Well, actually, I think he did. I think the people that have got it wrong are the people that don't believe the word world means world. Have I upset anyone yet? So these are C4s and C5s. There are people that believe this sort of stuff. Uh, the church replaces Israel. Okay, stuff like that. Um, and they all involve a great deal of this freighting in of human reasoning into these passages of scripture and saying, well, yeah, but what's happening here, you see, is this. There's a typology going on here that you don't really see. Or there's, uh, this is a shadow of something to come. You say, oh, really? Why does it say it's a shadow? Well, it doesn't actually, but these people are here to tell you this, you see. And if you believe it, if you buy what they tell you, then you'll start going to the Old Testament and you'll start thinking most of the Old Testament is actually types and shadows. And the only thing that the Old Testament is actually good for is telling you in types and shadows what the New Testament actually tells you more clearly. Which is a very strange and odd position when you actually stop and think about it because what is the Bible of the first Christians? That's the only thing they had. They didn't have the New Testament to go and reinterpret the Old Testament with. They just had the Old Testament. And having the Old Testament, it appears to me they did pretty well. The Old Testament, John, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Yes, or is God breathed? The scripture there is the Old Testament. That's what it's talking about. And is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction. I always get those back to front, but whatever it is. Um, That the man of God might be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished out to all good works. Okay, well, hold on a minute. Hold on. Let's do some, just some thinking here about this. If all scripture, the scripture that is inspired of God and is useful for doctrine, okay, if it's types and shadows, how can you use it for doctrine? Yeah. 
How can you use it to reprove anybody? Say, well, look, this type over here tells you, and you translate it into the literal language. Well, you know, then you're arguing about what the type means or doesn't mean, whether you've got the interpretation of the type right or not, whether it even is a type. Do you see? But that's not how we use the Bible, is it? What about when we're trying to comfort somebody? Do we take them to a type? We might say, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, and, and, and take them to that, but that's not a type. That's a metaphor. That's a figure of speech. And the Lord actually is, he does act like a shepherd. What a shepherd does is that a shepherd looks out for the sheep. He comes alongside. He guides them. They, they may not know where they're going and what they're doing. They may not be paying attention to the shepherd, but the shepherd's paying attention to them. That's why that's a powerful figure of speech, do you see? So that he really does bind up your wounds. Not unless you, you know, he won't come along with an elastoplast and, and, uh, and, and heal a cut. He gives you the ability to do that. But he can heal the brokenhearted. He can bind up those wounds. Sometimes they're painful and deep and so on and it takes time to heal. But the Lord is there, do you see? You don't get that kind of teaching out of the Bible by, by taking people to types and shadows of things. They want the reality of things. They want a God who actually says what he means. Well, he does say what he means. At least in this class he does. And uh, I believe reading his statement of faith that he does in this church. All right. So what, what's, what, what have we got here? We've still got time. I hope you weren't expecting that I was going to stop soon. <laughs> I'm going to go on for a little bit longer. If that's all right? Okay. I, this is all introductory stuff. So you understand the, work, the rules of affinity now, okay? So if you see me, go to a text of scripture and then uh, go off uh, and you think, well, it doesn't say that then you can call me on it. Okay? And I will try not to be so proud and arrogant as to um, pretend that I'm not being called on the carpet. I should humble myself and say, yeah, you're right about that. Or I might say, actually, you're wrong because. <laughs> but I'll have a good reason for it. Okay? I'll, I'll point it out to you that the context and so on is actually... Uh, telling or proving what I'm saying it actually says. All right. Let's move on to two things that I'm going to be bringing out over and over again. And you're going to be sick and tired of it, but I don't care because it's really important. And if you get it, I hope that it will really have a transforming effect in the way that you read the Bible and the way, the way that you interact with God. Uh, so the first thing is that there is uh, a really good reason for taking God at his word. Excuse me. Um, it's because God's a very good communicator. There are people that are not very good communicators. 
Sometimes my wife says I'm not a very good communicator, and sometimes I say her. She's not a very good communicator. And if you just told me what, you know, you wanted me to know in straightforward language, then I would get it. But anyway, whether, whether that's true or not, we all sometimes have problems with communication, don't we? Husbands and wives here are aware of some of those problems. Well, I told you that. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. I told you. No, you didn't. You said this. Yeah, but I meant this. Okay? You, you know that that goes on. And that's because of our fallibility as communicators and because sometimes we've, we actually have told somebody else and we think we've told our husband or our wife. So, you know, that, that goes on, but you can't charge God with that. God is not inept like we are sometimes. <clears throat> God is the uh, creator of language. What's language for? Just, just kind of strip it back. Pretend we didn't, we didn't have any language and we were, we were wanting to uh, communicate. Um, what would language be for? Well, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity within the everlasting trinity. They are communicative. That's the great thing about them. They, uh, they speak to each other. Okay. Is that your Bible down there in the, on that phone? Oh, it's my notes. Oh, your notes. Okay. All right. Okay. I always look suspiciously at devices. Um, all right. Um, so, um, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in perfect correspondence uh, and communication with each other. It's sort of loving and appreciative and eternal correspondence. You know, love in the Bible is, is uh, that which goes out and is committed to the other person first. Um, so you have a loving communication between the three persons of the Trinity. That means, because that's part of God's nature, you've heard some of this, is that um, when God decides to create us, communicative beings, beings that can hear and understand what we're saying, when God does that, uh, he does it lovingly. In other words, he doesn't just give us the ability to speak and understand. He gives us it because he loves us, because he wants to communicate that to us too. And he wants us to show that to each other too. Do you see? The one presupposes the other. Because love gives, it communicates. So language has got to be a language of love if it's divine, if it's biblical. So, examine yourselves <laughs> and see how you're doing. Sometimes I'm pretty rotten at that, but, um, you know, that's what it's supposed to be. So, God creates us and he creates us in his image after his likeness. That's an amazing privilege. And then he speaks to us. He speaks to Adam. He speaks to Eve and he says, all this stuff here that I've just created, you will have dominion over. We'll look at this much more next week. And um, 
obviously, Adam doesn't look at him like, eh? What does that mean? He understands the communication because God has given him the ability to understand. Do you see? There's no point in me talking to this whiteboard over here. It's not going to understand me, however simple I make my language. It doesn't have the ability to hear and to understand. But God has given you the ability both to hear and to understand his words. You don't always use it. That's why Jesus often said, this is where you say, he that has ears, let him hear. Do you see? Because he's given you these things, you see, and he expects us to use them. Sometimes we don't use them very well. Um, so when God creates he creates first of all in uh, people that he can speak to that can understand language that's the first reason for language for us to understand or receive the word of God that's the very first thing that's absolutely fundamental to the biblical worldview. Uh, that changes everything if your worldview doesn't have that as its, uh, its uh, founding premise, then you don't have a biblical worldview. So you need to change it. So that is at the bottom of it. Your ability to, uh, to use language is given to you so that God can speak to you. The world will say it's given to you and there is no, no such thing as God. It's just a, an accident and even evolutionary development. No, it's not. Secondly, God comes and he fellowships with Adam and he has given the ability to Adam to name the animals. That means Adam can use the ability, the communicative ability that he's got, both to talk to God and to use it uh, to describe things in God's world science if you like so language is it takes uh, takes into itself knowledge and uh, God reveals himself to us we are supposed to use our language in adoration back to God that's what worship is uh, so worship is words First and foremost, it's, it's, it starts here. It doesn't start here. It starts here. Um, and then thirdly, because God gave a, uh, a mandate to Adam and Eve to, uh, to produce others, then clearly the third use of language is to talk among ourselves about God. So in the end of uh, Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, it says, Then they that feared the Lord talked often one with another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. Because that's what language is supposed to be for. We talk about all kinds of vain, dumb things. Um, and some of that's legitimate, Okay. But, but much of what we talk about and what we use our words up with is, is rather trivial and pointless and sometimes we think it's important and it's not important. Um, 
But what we should be doing is using language for the reason it was given. Um, what is the good of, of all of this if God doesn't mean what he says when he talks to us? If God had said, this is for you, if God had said to Adam, uh, you see that flower over there, you shouldn't really touch it. And I wouldn't go anywhere near it if I were you. Because if you do, you'll get sick. And so God, and so Adam says, okay, I got the thing about the, the flower and don't touch it. And so he goes up to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he starts eating the fruit of it and he dies. Why? Because God did not tell him about the tree. Okay? He told him about the flower. And Adam might have said, well, hold on a minute, this isn't fair. You didn't warn me about the tree, you warned me about the flower. And God would, you know, this figurative God doesn't really exist, uh, might say, yeah, but I was using figurative language and I really meant if you touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you eat from that fruit, you'll surely die. That's what I really meant to say. Do you see that, that language can't get going if God doesn't, from the very offset, mean what he says, communicate his meaning. When you are talking to somebody, when you're communicating with them, okay, you don't try to bamboozle them unless you're fooling around. You try to tell them in clear and distinct language. If they misunderstand you, it's either because they weren't listening very well or you didn't communicate very well. But if they heard something that you said that you didn't mean because you were not telling them what you really did mean, that's your fault. So if God does not mean what he says and he's communicating to us something different than what he really means, he's not a very good communicator. And it's his fault. Please listen to me. And that's a problem. So either logically we believe that God does mean what he says and that clears that point up or we have a theology where God doesn't mean what he says and we just pretend that he does but he doesn't. A lot of Christians have that latter theology. They do and I'll bring this out to you. Um, There was one more thing on this. So if if um, I read most of the books that I read I don't agree with and I do that so I can learn I don't learn very much from people I do agree with okay? I, I read them a long time ago now I, I study books with people that I don't agree with to find out where I might be a bit wrong or to better understand how they're wrong, do you see? Um, 
and there are, there are people, in fact, it's the ascendant view in evangelicalism today, that believe that, um, well, we'll just stick with this clear teaching, that the church is now the new Israel and God is all through with national Israel. Okay? Um, and the way that they argue is to say, well, we're not, we're not replacing Israel with the church. We're just transforming the language or we're expanding the language because we're in the age where we can use euphemisms, you see. Um, and they don't seem to realize, I don't think, that when we when they say that, they're saying that not just of their theology. They're saying it of the God that they claim they get their theology from. That means that they're saying that the God who they are getting that theology from equivocates. Okay, big word. What's an equivocation? Uh, so, if I say to, to uh, David here, if I say, Dave, can you go um, and the, in my boot you will find uh, Jack. Can you go and get that Jack for me? So, what's he going to expect to find in the boot? A car Jack, yes? And yet, and yet trunk. And yet, um, if, sorry, so, so he comes back and he says, he, I, there's no jack there. And I said, no, not a car jack. I meant one of those little annoying things that you, you know, you, you children use. Do you see? Yeah. That's the jack I meant. Well, what's going on there? It's the same word, isn't it? But there's an equivocation in the meaning. He thinks it means one thing, and I have in my head something else. That equivocation is part of my communicative uh, error. Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the word. Um, if I do that kind of thing a lot, then that's part of my character. Do you see? If I mislead people because I use equivocal language a lot, misleading language, they think it's one thing, but I really mean something else. If I do that a lot, habitually, that's a character issue. So, and, I, and I, I've said this and I've debated it, or I've tried to debate it with these guys, they will not debate this issue. But... Um, it's true to say that if these people are right and um, God is all through with national Israel and those covenants really were just types and all of those promises and all that specific language in the Old Testament is really just a shadow of the reality which is the church, which is mainly Gentile, by the way. Um, you cannot escape from the conclusion that God equivocates and that equivocation, because it's so widespread in the Old Testament, is part of his character. 
if equivocation is part of the character of God, how can you believe anything he says? If you had the kind of character where you equivocated, and I, I wasn't really sure that you meant what you said because I'd learned that you, a lot of times you don't mean what I think you mean, I would not trust you. What's faith, folks? How can you have faith in somebody who doesn't mean what they say? Or might not mean what they say? Faith has to hold on to the, let's use the word, literal interpretation of somebody's words. And if you don't have that, you can't have faith because how do you know that you're actually believing the right thing? Do you see? And the problem is not yours, the problem is the one who's communicating to you. But God requires faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So either you have a God who makes it easy for you to please him, or a God who makes it very difficult for you to please him. Certain approaches to the Bible, logically, not that their adherents would agree to this, logically make the God of Scripture difficult to believe because you're not sure that this time he really means what he says. Because you can point to a whole host of times. In fact, uh, we, will, we will do this in the course of our studies here, especially if you hang around for the next one, next course. You will see uh, that there are people that... Uh, that don't believe that those promises in the Old Testament are literal at all. I will bring you the books and I will quote them for you so that you know. This is not just me making it up. I'll quote it verbatim so that you will know. Because I want you to believe this book. It's not given to us as some kind of plaything so God can... can sneer at us and and make fun at us because of uh, we're, we're actually trying to believe it and trying to you know take it at face value no he wants us to take it at face value he's pleased when we do he's not pleased when we don't yes that's all right Can I say one thing for you, Skip? One thing. Give me one minute. All right. I'm going to take five minutes. All right. Um, Yes. All right. So, um, somebody go to Genesis chapter one. In fact, you go to Genesis chapter one. And then you have to stay here for for a bit. Genesis chapter 1, read verses 26 and 27. Uh, No, no, actually don't go go there. Go to, uh, I think it's verse 11. 11 through 13, let me just have a look here. Yeah. No, 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 Genesis 1, 11. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's uh, it's the stuff where it talks about the God made the uh, the you know the plants for the tree. Is that it? Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing trees bearing fruit. Which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. Alright. Have you ever wondered why verse 12 has to repeat verse 11? Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself and on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and the herb that yields seed according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. Can't you kind of edit some of that? A little bit. Yes. Yes, it says it means more than that. It means that what is in God's mind is what is on God's tongue. There's not a difference going on up here, if you like, in the mind of God and what's coming out of the the mouth of God. Okay? Let us make man in our own uh, image, after our own likeness. So what does he do? That's him talking to himself, yes? So what does he do? Makes man in his own image, after his own likeness. There's a correspondence between what's in God's mind and what he says. Do you see that? There's also a correspondence between God's words, and this is where you can leave in just a sec. God's words and his actions. The actions correspond with the words. It's a pattern. I'll show you next week. It's a pattern. But there is a correspondence between God's words or what he says and what he does. So there is a correspondence between God's words and God's actions. I'm going to repeat this and show it to you time and time again as we go through this course and the next one and the next one. Um, I'm going to close um, with this. I've got down there something to do with covenants and we'll look at covenants more next week. But if you'll go to Joshua chapter 9... I'm just going to read for you. <clears throat> you know Joshua chapter 9, most of you, is about the Gibeonites. Where were the Gibeonites from? The Gibeonites. By the way, I'm asking you these questions and it's telling me something about you. Which I will 
use as we go through, okay? This is, this is why I've said that this is kind of, it kind of depends on where we're at as far as how fast or slow I can go. Hey? They were not. Where were they from? They were from Canaan. But they didn't want to get killed by the Israelites coming in. So they devised this idea that they, they'd dress up uh, in these old clothes and they'd get this old moldy bread and they would look all haggard and, you know, come before uh, Joshua and the elders and say, oh, we've traveled from this far country and, uh, you know, all this, this, uh, uh, this tale that they told. And uh, Joshua believes them. And uh, listen to what goes on here. Uh, we'll go from verse 11. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new and see they were torn, they are torn. And these our garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the law. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. Notice that. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And then lo and behold, they find out that uh, they've been fooled. But they can't do anything about it. Because they've sworn a covenant. Go to Second Samuel, <clears throat> chapter 21. This is a long time afterwards. You have a soft voice, but I can hear you with one ear. I'm deaf in my left. At least you've got one ear that you can hear me with. Yes, I can hear All right. Second Samuel 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. What was the covenant about? Letting them live. Look at this. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And it goes on. So Joshua had sworn a covenant with these Gibeonites not to kill them. Hundreds of years later, Saul kills them, or starts killing them. God sees it, remembers the covenant, 
and sends a famine for three years upon Israel until David wakes up to the fact that something's not right in Denmark or Israel. And God tells him it's because of this covenant. So the last thing that I want to say to you tonight is, let me (coughs) take this off. Hopefully um, everything will not fall around my ears while I'm doing this. It's getting a bit wonky, isn't it? Um, God takes covenants very seriously. Um, And here, what does God do when a covenant is being breached? He acts because he expects people that make a covenant to abide by the words of the covenant. But he makes covenants. He makes covenants with Noah, he makes covenants with Abraham, he makes covenants with Phineas, he makes covenants with David, he makes covenants with Israel, and he makes covenants with us, or one, in Christ. Is he hypocritical? Is he going to hold his creatures to a standard higher than his own standard? Or is he going to do exactly what he promises to do in the covenant? The covenants, you see, that what they are first and foremost, and we'll build on this, what they are first and foremost is that they are big word, I'll use it, I'll try to use the lesser word, but I'm going to use it um, occasionally, so. It's hermeneutical. In other words, it's interpretative. It deals with interpretation. Covenants are first and foremost about interpretation of meaning. They're hermeneutical. If they're first and foremost hermeneutical and they must mean what they say and God will hold people to the standard of what they say in that oath, he will surely hold himself to that same standard. That means that when God swears an oath like he did to Abraham in Genesis 15, that you can absolutely bank on the fact that he is not going to rescind that promise. Do you see? And uh, that means that you cannot introduce any teaching into your theology, into your statements of faith and so on that will contradict the biblical covenant. C1? Yes, they're CC111s. Yes, that's exactly what they are.